you wanted the best, but you're shit out of luck. Welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. We're here to waste some of your time and hopefully entertain you for a little bit. So thank you for letting us into your head. Hope we don't do any damage. Welcome to episode two of the KISS FAQ Podcast. Uh, thank you for spending time with us today. I'd also like to thank everyone who listened to the debut episode. Uh, that certainly exceeded all my expectations. So thank you for wasting some of your time on us. The panel today includes Alan... Sean and Jay. So, starting with Alan, why don't you guys introduce yourself uh, to everyone watching? Uh, hi, everyone. So, my name is Alain. I'm from Belgium originally, but you may know me on the Kiss FAQ as Belish, the man from Japan. I lived there for 16 years. Um, I became a Kiss fan in 1979. Um, my first Kiss album was uh, Dynasty was offered on my sixth birthday, and um, I've been obsessed with KISS ever since. I um, The next thing I should talk about is my favorite album. Uh, my favorite album is Lick It Up. Uh, I think it's uh, the most compact and the most, the heaviest KISS album. Um, Dress to Kill is a close second for me. And my favorite KISS member right now at this stage of my life, is Gene Simmons. Awesome. Sean, how about you? Okay, I'm Sean from Wichita, Kansas. Um, I'm not entirely sure when I became a KISS fan. Um, I got into them when I was so young that I don't really remember how I got into them or what my first album would have been. Um, the earliest album I can remember getting that was new would probably be the, the Symphony album. Um, my favorite album is Psycho Circus. I do really like that it's kind of a hodgepodge of different styles and elements from the band, which I know a lot of other people don't like, but I just really like the songs on that album. And my favorite member is uh, Paul. I just like his songs the best. Fantastic. Jay, how about you? Uh, well, my obsession with Kiss started... Way back in the day, uh, 1974. Um, oh, and by the way, I'm music guy on the fact. Um, anyway, yeah, my my brothers turned me on to Kiss in uh, mid 74. Um, I didn't actually own a Kiss record myself until several years later. So that first record would have been the Destroyer album, um, and then the obsession was completely full-blown by that point um i'd have to say probably my first or my favorite kiss record would be dressed to kill for sure um just the, the production on that alone is amazing probably some of peter chris's best drums production i drum sounds i've heard on any other kiss album uh and there's just a, a lot of there's a lot of unusual sort of uh I don't know, B-sides on that album. It's not loaded with the obvious hits, of course, except um, with the exception of a, a few of them, but Rock and Roll Night being the obvious one. Um, my favorite member, Ace Fraley, has been since I was a kid, um, still is today. Well, that's awesome. Thank you very much, guys. You know, that's, again, a good, diverse group of favorite albums, favorite people, and when we all got into the band, obviously I'm Julian, I'm the 
admin at Kiss FAQ, and everything is my fault. So um, I touched on it last week in my intro. Asylum was my first album, so I'm a later day fan as well. All right, let's get into a topic today. Um, it's a current affairs topic, really. Um, next Wednesday in Japan is the release of the Momoero Clover Z and Kiss collaboration. Um, it's going to be released in a couple of formats. Um, the Kiss version, which uh, includes, I believe, it includes the Japanese version of the song, um, a rock and roll all night version with both bands, and the English version of the song, Samurai Sun, um, which is obviously a Paul sung track. The Japanese version for um, Momoklo includes their song and I believe Rock and Roll All Night and comes with a bonus Blu-ray DVD uh, which has the video which is now out on YouTube. So if you haven't seen it, go and at least check out these girls um, because it's a very unusual collaboration. Um, and we've got so many angles that we kind of can approach this topic um, from collaboration to later day Kiss recordings to the surprise. So have... Let's just start. Have you guys all heard this, and uh, what did you think of it, Jay? Uh, actually, I just, I finally did get around to listening to it a couple of days ago. I uh, heard a leak of the English version of the Kiss track, Samurai Sun. Um, gotta say, you know, it's always, it's always great when a new Kiss song comes out. I mean, especially this day and age, we're kind of wrapping up sort of at the tail end of their career, and I think the expectation for new music is a little lower than it probably was 10 years ago. Uh, so the excitement's there, but then on the flip side of that, uh, this track, you know, it's just, uh, it's very unusual. It reminds me of a 1980s Nintendo game <laughs> theme song modernized in the, in, in the 2000s. It's just, uh, it's definitely Japanese pop, no doubt about it. And uh, I think that's probably an acquired taste for anyone who may not be cultured enough to have experienced it firsthand. Alan, what about you? I mean, uh, you, you've got a little bit it's, more experience having lived in Japan. It's 100% Japanese pop. I seriously doubt Paul Stanley and Greg Collins wrote that song. I think it was brought to them 100% from the Japanese side. Uh, I Maybe you won't be surprised, but I, I kind of like it for what it is. I think it's a great Japanese pop song. And to... Uh, Go back to what what you just said, uh, Jay. It's um, th that band, Momoiro Clover Z. They did a, a song for Pokemon a year or two ago. That's how I first time I heard of them was my my kids. I, when I said when I first saw the news that Kiss was collaborating with that band, I said, who are they? And it turns out my ten year old kids knew because they 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 sang a song for a Pokemon movie a year or two ago. So that you're def definitely on that that angle um so yeah i think um i think it's going it, it's it's selling already very well um uh, their number the japanese version is number eight on amazon pre uh, pre-orders um i personally like the japanese version better than the the, the samurai sun paul version i think it's the original one and uh it just flows sounds better in my ears anyway well, I don't get Samurai Son. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me as a song. He's name-dropping Lexington Queen, which was a club. I think he's uh, name-dropping some other areas. But I'm not sure what that has to do with Samurai um, or Bushido or anything culturally that, you know, a gaijin's going to think of a Samurai. There's, uh, I'm not getting any imagery. 
what what particularly annoys me is when he says the Ginza. You nobody says the Ginza except tourists or in tourist books. It's Ginza. Like you don't say the Times Square, you don't say the Central Park. You just say Central Park Times Square. So it's Ginza. The fact that he says that just to me is ruins the whole English version. <laughs> Sean, what's your take on it? Strangely, it's not the weirdest thing they've ever done, but I do kind of like it. I like a lot of what Tommy and Eric do on the track. Um, one thing I notice, I'm not sure what I think about it, but during the chorus, they have everyone on the background vocals uh, saying, singing stuff like you know, change it and rearranging that part. And what I found interesting about that was that it's mixed kind of low, whereas I think traditionally with Kiss, that part would be really big and loud and in your face and in this song it's kind of quiet um other than that i think it's an okay song i like how paul sounds i do really like the production on it um much more so than on monster or sonic boom so i think it's an interesting song at least one of my comments on the board early on with this song was i thought paul's vocals sounded better if we go back, to, if we go back to Monster, there are songs on there which I felt were ruined by his vocal limitations at that time, and maybe the technology they were trying to use in the studio to to mask uh, the weaknesses. What do people think about? I mean, do you think he sounds better at this time? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely noticed that right away when I was streaming the song the other day. Uh, at the time, I wasn't sure whether that was an indication that Paul's vocal problems have maybe gotten, gotten better, improved, or uh, whether there's just uh, more savvy technology going on in the studio to cover that. Really, honestly, at the end of the day, it's the end product that matters. So how they go about doing that is really, I guess, kind of not terribly important as long as it sounds good. And I will say that I, I think Paul's voice sounded better on this track than, than I have noticed on the last two Kiss records. So I'll give him that. Alan, what do you think? Uh, honestly, I, I, I think he's probably more careful the way he sings. I don't, in my ears, it, it didn't really sound, didn't sound better. That's that's another reason why I, I, I still going for the Japanese version of the song. How is the reception in Japan to a band like Momoklo teaming up with Kiss for this sort of thing? It's a really, for me, it's a really odd collaboration. I'm more used to thinking when you take two different genres of music, run DMC and Aerosmith. That's probably the king of collaborations for, from my experience, or uh, who was Anthrax and Public Enemy, you know, or maybe even Bon Jovi and what was it, Carrie Underwood, which was, you know, very safe. Is this just the weirdest collaboration? Is this like the read my body of collaborations? <laughs> <laughs> well, in appearance, maybe. Um, you know, it, that, that band, they're, they're huge. They're absolutely the number one. They, when they, when apparently it was McGee, director of marketing, who had the idea to teaming up with a Japanese pop band, they didn't choose the second fiddle. They just went for the, the biggest ones. And so Momoito Club that is the biggest female group in Japan right now. Um, they've tried everything. They've done a lot of very different things. Um, I found out that they played the Ozfest in 2013 you know, among tons of metal bands in Japan. Uh, they, they were there and uh, that takes some, you know, some serious dedication to, to go in front of a of metal, metal uh, audience 
in a festival. Uh, and apparently, the you know the heavy metal magazine Burn, they decided to boycott that uh, the band. They they didn't uh, interview or put any pictures or review their concerts at the Ozfest. They simply decided it was not for for their their readers. So they that band they're they're trying a lot of things and things have gone very well for them. Um, but still, to me, it was it was a big shock when I first heard the news, and especially the fact that they will play at the Tokyo Dome before Kiss. I think the last time Kiss had an opening band in Japan was in 1977. Uh, that also drove up the price of the um, the tickets on the black market uh, because they have, of course, thousands thousands of fans. So they're competing with Kiss fans to buy good tickets. Um, so um it's it's you know japan is the land of weird so it shouldn't be surprising <laughs> that collaboration is far for the course i guess sean what's what's your like impression of them hooking up with this girl band i mean i guess we could have seen maybe baby metal but uh momoklo um, it was definitely surprising because it did just sort of come out of nowhere like, I don't think anybody really heard anything about it until they made that specific announcement. And so little was known about the project when they announced it. Like, we're still not entirely sure exactly what it is. That's probably the amazing part. You know, here we are, Internet Era, tweets and uh, people rummaging through people's garbage cans. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, came this announcement that, you know, number one, they'd been in the studio recording. Number two, that it was going to be with a Japanese band. Uh, I mean, going back to 74, when you, you first became a, uh, a fan, Jay, do you feel some of the magic of having the surprise? Totally. Totally. I mean, that's, you know, the unfortunate thing. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a strange dichotomy because while the mystery is gone uh, in some respects, uh, at the same time, we have access to things that we never would have dreamed of, you know, in 1974. So it's kind of a trade-off. You know, I think I'd probably rather go back to the days when, you know, you waited with bated breath for the new uh, rock scene magazine or whatever to hit the stand so that you could get the latest scoop on what's going on with the band. Uh, but I'm just really surprised by how well-insulated Japanese pop culture is from, I don't know if the rest of the world perhaps is the best way to put it, but certainly the U.S. I had no idea who this, who this group was. They're a huge sensation over in Asia. Um, you know, clear up there on Justin Bieber level, which I hate to even <laughs> utter those words. But uh, but anyway, you know, and I've never heard of them. And I'm pretty tapped into what's going on, globally speaking, with some of the huge bands and whatnot. But this, this band completely just flew under my radar. I don't know how that is, but it is. But had anyone heard of Psy before Gangman Style, you know, became a hit out here? <laughs> you know, true. if you're going to go from J-pop to K-pop, you know, it, it's, uh, I guess it's it's music. What do you expect them to do on stage, you know, when uh, Momoclo opens for Kiss? What's, what do you imagine happening at that show? Do you think Kiss will, uh, I guess, go on stage with them and do this song? Or, or what, Sean? Any nightmare scenarios there? I'm not really sure because I don't know a whole lot about this band. Do we know? Do they play instruments or are they more traditional pop where they 
dance to music that's playing in the background. They're more the dance type. More of a dance type. So I'm not entirely sure how exactly it would work actually playing on stage with Kiss. That I'd like to see that just to see what it would be, but I'm not sure how it would work. Might be the first time they have a guitar on stage with them while they're singing. Yeah. I'm I'm having images of Slade teaming up with New Kids on the Block right now for some reason, and uh, <laughs> all, all this all the strange collaborations that you can come up with. I don't think I can think of one that's stranger than this. So it's definitely it's it's definitely bizarre. Now I did a little bit of research on the band, or if that's what you want to call them. Uh, I did a little bit of research, and apparently they're uh, they're even considered in some respects a progressive pop act i don't know if i quite hear that in the stuff that i've heard but apparently they have a really intense live uh show and they do a lot of uh, i guess uh, really complex acrobatics and things like that so i mean maybe we're not giving them enough credit i don't know you know, I think it was uh, Paul and, or Gene were, were saying, you know, that they've got the fire on stage. They've got the, you know, everything that goes into a Kiss show, Momoko does similarly in the Japanese market. Not just like, I think they've got colors associated with the individual members as well, which is very Kiss. I don't know. Does that have any cultural significance, Alan? Um, well, you know, the very famous uh, TV show, the, the Power Rangers, um, it's the Power Rangers is an, an, the American version of the original uh, Japanese uh, karate ninja from space type of thing, and they had five five colors: the red, the yellow, the blue, the green. So that comes from there. So they're uh, they're like superheroes, um, and they all have their colors, like uh, the, those uh, those uh, ninja from space. Um, so that's that that's one thing. Yes, they are a very they're a hardworking, very hardworking band. Um, what, what I would imagine for the, the first, the opening act to be would be probably a 30 minute segment. Uh, they, they play a few songs, including the last, the, the one with Kiss. And I would imagine just wild guess that Kiss would be in the form of shape of a, of, of big dolls like, like Eddie from Iron Maiden. You know, they would have four, four Kiss type dolls, uh, running around the stage. That would be my my guess because Kiss has a very you know, elaborate production stage. It would be difficult for them to show up to do backing on on a, on one song. So I don't know. We'll we'll have to wait and see. And there was something that was in my mind just now that I can't think of with this. Oh God, yeah, Power Rangers. And of course, Kiss turned down doing a, a song for the Power Rangers soundtrack in 1999. So you know, really? maybe they're maybe they're finally making up for that. Uh, anything I else? Want to give, I want to give credit to the the video because I think it, the video is very visual and it's great that finally I get after thirty years of waiting I get to see Kiss as a cartoon. I think that was a a thing that when I was a kid that I was I dreamed instead of Kiss meets the Phantom I wanted to see a Kiss cartoon show, and the fact that they're on uh, they're on this video in in cartoons with the the, the Momoiro. At, at the beginning, I think the, the the video is extremely well done with you know traditional Japanese uh, Mount Fuji from uh, from Oksai and uh, different writings and they have their choreography is some kind of you know the, the sumo uh, sumo thing. The video is 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 really well done. It's uh, 
it's it it was great to see. I think it it really adds to the to the quality of the song. What about the album covers or the the I guess the CD single covers? Have I have uh, any of you guys seen those? The uh, Sean, what's your take on? Let's go with the Kiss version first. With uh, I think Paul's been called a little bit creepy on that. Um, I actually like uh, the Kiss cover a lot. It reminds me of a lot of sort of those classic Universal movie monster posters. I think when people are talking about Paul being creepy, they're sort of comparing him to Frankenstein's monster. And I definitely see that, but I kind of like that about it. And that's how the video portrays them as well, as these sort of larger-than-life creatures, which I think is interesting. Yeah, kind of reminiscent of the blockbuster greeting promo from the uh, reunion era with kind of the the you-wanted-the-best faces pose on that one. Well, you know, I mean, at least it at least it's not creepy on the Folgers coffee. <laughs> so it's all about perspective. Hey, I gave up drinking coffee after that. <laughs> oh no! All right, so so for everyone, we're we're throwing a little segment into each one of these podcasts that uh, you know just the opportunity to play a little bit of a a, a rare track which you may or may not have heard. Um, I'm just going to give you 30 seconds of one today as a segue into our second topic. So here we go. That's 30 seconds of an early take of Escape from the Island. If um, any of you remember the Novelda feature that Tim was primarily uh, yeah. responsible for a few years ago, a, a chap contacted us with a reel of eight instrumental takes, um, seven of which were um, Ace and Eric and who knows else, who else, I think it's probably Bob on bass, working out Escape from the Island. It starts with this first version, which is pretty rough, and they start tightening it up, um, getting much closer to what it was on the album, or at least the non-Japanese version of the album. And the final track was um, a previously unknown instrumental with Eric and Ace, uh, which was really cool. I'd love to get my hands on that reel and get the full tracks, but there's just a little taste for you. Let's move into a second topic. Um, one of the things that message boards come in for criticism about is how anyone can write anything without really attributing it properly and twisting it. We had a, a post on the board, I think it was last week, where um, the, the title was Paul Stanley Criticizes Eddie Kramer. And I'll just read you the quote as it was put on on the board. Uh, The poster wrote, The albums Kramer did with Kiss, apart from Alive, just sounds little and plinky, and not at all competitive with the other albums around the time. Our contemporary albums sounded better than the albums Eddie Kramer produced with uh, with Kiss. So this was from a Pat Monaghan podcast. And whenever you see quotes like this, I really recommend that you go out there and listen to them 
for yourself because here's the actual quote um, of Paul on that podcast. He said, The studio albums, I've always had issues with the audio sonics and fidelity of them. Pat asked him, With Eddie Kramer? And Paul continues, Well, not with Alive. Eddie and I have had talks where I've said that I think that those early albums were not competitive with our contemporaries at that point. They didn't sound like we sounded live. They sounded plinky and little. We never sounded like that. When you put on some of our contemporaries' albums from back then, they sounded sonically much better than us. So that's two vastly different things. That uh, You take that first quote, the first uh, message in the thread, and people go off on, you know, Paul's criticizing everyone under the sun, his ego's out of control, blah, blah, blah. But let's go to the topic. Do those early albums sound little and plinky, you know, or... You know, were the contemporary albums that much better sounding in contemporaries? Aerosmith, uh, Ted Nugent, and God knows who else. I mean, a ton of different acts. What do you guys think? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I can agree maybe a little bit with the first two albums as much as I love them. Um, you know, I mean, I think most KISS fans would probably agree on some level that uh, those first two KISS records are, are lacking in some areas as far as Sonics are concerned. You know, of course, Hotter Than Hell being the standout uh, with so many issues with the fidelity of that recording. But, um, you know, I mean, I can't really think of anything that came out after that, and not only with KISS, but with the contemporaries, as it were, that, that was really a whole lot different. I mean, I really didn't start seeing big, huge productions in, in modern rock music until around Boston, really, and Foreigner and sort of the album-oriented rock. That's when I noticed the fidelity of the recordings started to really be uh, much better than, than what they had been up to that point. But, you know, I mean, Stairway to Heaven maybe might be an exception in a lot of the Led Zeppelin catalog. But aside from that, I mean, I don't know. I really don't see, I really don't see exactly what Paul's saying. Sean, what's your thought on the early albums? They sound good. They sound garbage. Um, with the first two albums specifically, I think there's a bigger problem with the tempos on the song rather than how they sound. Um, I think they, either the producers or the band, made a choice to slow the songs down quite a bit, and I felt feel like that neutered a lot of the songs and took out a lot of their energy in comparison to their Alive versions. I think that's why a lot of people prefer Alive to those first two albums. But I would also say that Hotter Than Hell um, sounds less than great. I'm not a fan of that production, but I don't have a problem with how the, the self-titled album or how Dress to Kill sound. I have more of an issue how the songs are presented. Is there a difference, really, in the sound of Dress to Kill and Love Gun? I mean, those two pretty much sound nearly identical definitely the production i would say sound uh, i think those two are probably two of the better produced records i mean destroyer obviously being another one of those i'd say those three are probably you know sort of the the pinnacle of the production end of things at least for the original era of the band destroyer almost doesn't count because it's just like the ultimate kiss Right. You know, they, they didn't really go back that direction until Psycho Circus in terms of um, tremendously produced and orchestral and, you know, just over right. the top. Alan, what do, you, what do you make of the early albums? And, and I guess this is the first six, you know. 
Well, uh, I think the key thing is with to compare with with contemporaries, as 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 it says. Um, and if you if you listen to to Love Gun between Rock and Roll Over and Alive Two, you, you it's fine. But if you if you listen, for example, to the um, the soundtrack of the movie Detroit Rock City, which had a lot of um, or even if you watch the movie, you know, with Tim Lizzy, uh, Jailbreak, uh, Blue Oster Cult songs, and then you hear Shout It Out Loud, or you hear I Stole Your Love. It, it it's true. There's 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 a drop in 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 sound. It says, oh that oh you have a Kiss song, and then you have all the rest of the '70s songs. I I I I feel it. I I've always thought Love Love Gun sounded strange for some reason. Um, I can't. I don't. I don't have the the technical vocabulary to explain. Uh, but if you hear uh, "Running with the Devil" Van Halen '77, '78, and then you hear "I Stole Your Love" or "Shock Me," and then you hear "Tilizzi," and it, I f- I hear a, a a drop in 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 sound quality somehow. And that's really noticeable. But in the transition on the first two albums, Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise do two albums. Two vastly different sounding albums, and I, I, I said last week that yeah, sure, some of the blame maybe is on Ace for his experimental cardboard box bass or whatever that uh, you know, amp was, um, but that didn't sound right. And I think of the early albums, the best sounding one, the one that captures everything that they'd been trying to capture is Rock and Roll Over, and maybe it's because it's recorded live in the theater. Uh, you know, with the overdubs later, and the first album. I I, I think the first album nails it. Um, sure, it could do with a little bit of tweaking. Which one of those first six albums do you think best represents the so-called Kiss sound? Um, you know, I mean, I, I guess, you know, maybe in hindsight, now looking back, I would say probably... Rock and Roll Over would be sort of maybe more representative of the classic Kiss sound that you would expect. Um, and I'd put it up there as far as production is concerned. I actually really like the sound of it. One thing that I really like about it is it's got it's got the edge that uh, you know Kiss had early in those first two records as far as the guitar tones are concerned. Um, but at the same time, there's just enough gloss uh, to make it palatable. So it's, it's almost like a it's almost like a distillation of Destroyer meets maybe Dress to Kill with a li- maybe a little more guitar, uh, edgy guitar tones. So I, I, I like it. I would say Rock and Roller probably is maybe the, the truest to the, the sound that most people identify with Kiss. Sean? Uh, for me, it would definitely be uh, Destroyer. That's the one that sounds the biggest and the loudest and just the one that I respond to the most. God, and some of the material on there, I mean, Flaming Youth will always be one of my favorite songs. Sometimes it is hard to sort of different, separate the songs that you like and how they sound. Like, do you think that sometimes colors how you look, how certain albums sound? Like, I may like the look of production better than Dress to Kill simply, simply because it has songs like I Stole Your Love and Shock Me. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think any of us, you know, think, oh, Love Gun. I automatically think I Stole Your Love, you know, favorite song on the album. Alan, what about you? Um, I'm, I'm a partisan of Less Is More. I think um, 
Dress to Kill to me is, you know, there was a lot of issues of, about production. They did it really fast. Neil Bogart wasn't there apparently, but it just sound sounds great. It's 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 the closer to alive, I think. Um, it's really it's raw, it's rough, it's uh, it's basic, and it's it just still now. I think it's it sounds great. So it's almost a self, that almost makes it a self-produced album. Yes, yeah, and yeah. I think they did really well. So what yeah. what they basically learned from Kerner and Wise and Ron Johnson, you know, not, what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, Dress to Kill. You know, I mean, while I'll, while I will concede your uh, comment about rock and roll being maybe the most Kiss-like in terms of sound. Um, got to go with Alan as, as well because Dress to Kill to me is just I think it's the perfect Kiss record as far as production maybe it's a little weak on the songs uh, in places but that's almost a charm for me for that record is that uh, I mean I think there's a good reason why Kiss went out on that Kiss cruise last two years now they've done practically the entire Dress to Kill album in, in its entirety. Those songs are classics, even though they may not necessarily be uh, mainstream. I love them. I love the album. It's a, good, it's a good point. And that might be a really cool way to beef up Kiss Cruise 5, that if they're saying that it's going to be Cruise Alive, well, inject into it all that material that was performed on the Dress to Kill tour, that didn't make it onto the live album, uh, yeah. you know, what were they also performing back then? Strange Ways, Off Hotter Than Hell, Mainline. They can really beef up that. You know, there's there's criticism of, oh, you're going to pay to go on a cruise and get alive when they did that in 2008. Um, but do you think Rock and Roll Over would make a good core for a performance? I think that actually would be great. I would love to hear, uh, you know, I'd love to hear Baby Driver. Uh, I know that song catches a lot of heat on the FAQ, but I hate freak, it. I freaking love it. To me, uh, and I'm not even a huge Peter Chris fan, but that song, to me, that's the perfect Peter Chris song. And I know that's probably setting the bar low for some Chris fans, <laughs> but, but uh, I think Baby Driver is a fantastic song. It's probably my favorite song on the Rock and Roll Over album, and I, I would shit myself if I heard that song live. That would be amazing. <laughs> Do you think Eric could pull it off vocally? No, he, I think his his voice is a little too thin and reedy. Uh, that's always been my sort of my complaint about Eric's voice. I think he's better off as a as a back backing vocalist, which I think he's great at. But I've never been impressed with any of his uh, his lead vocals. It, it, both on the live front and even in the studio. All right, so of those early albums, and let's let's go back to that that quote of which one sounds the most little and plinky to you. What's the worst album of the originals in terms of production? The first one, I would say. You're gonna go with that over hotter than hell, or does material does the material color our opinions here? Yes, I think it does. Um, yeah, I, I, harder than hell. It's it's difficult to not to hear how bad it sounds. Um, yeah, okay, I, I changed my mind. Harder than hell. 
I kind of agree with you too as well. I mean, I love hotter than hell and you know, I love that swampy sludgy kind of sound. I, I don't know if I would necessarily call it little and plinky, but I, I would definitely say um, that it's probably, I mean, I think everyone would agree it's the weakest production, but um, there's just, uh, I don't know. I think that maybe I'd have to say the first album actually would probably be the little and plinky that Paul's talking about. Cause the guitar tones there aren't quite as massive as they are on Harder Than Hell. Sean? Um, my least favorite of production-wise would be Haunted the Hell. I just don't like the way it sounds, and I think it kills a lot of the songs. But there are certain songs on the record that I do think the production fits very well, um, mainly the Gene material and Ace's material. I think Parasite sounds really, really good. I like how Watching You sounds. But I think a lot of Paul's songs really, really suffer from the production. So Little and Plinky, I immediately thought uh, W or Dress to Kill. Dress to Kill, I just find that it's just so flat. you know. And I don't know whether it's because there's not a whole bunch of uh, screaming lead guitar. I mean, I miss a lot of the solos, which are kind of lacking on that album. It, it doesn't have – it's so concise, so edited. Um You've got a three-minute song that surely could have been, or not even three minutes, because didn't they make the gaps between the tracks on the LP longer to make it feel like a longer record? I mean, yeah. Or I guess that must be true since I read it on the internet. Um, <laughs> it, it it just sounds it like it's struggling for for a bit of duration. A two-minute and twenty-three-second track. You know, the Ramones would be proud of how short the Kiss songs are on that album. So. Right I've got I've got issues with the material on that album, let alone the sounds. I mean, it, it's it's like the unrealized rush that it probably was to get your butts back in the studio. We're sinking here. We got to have product to sell. Um, I'm going to produce it for you when I'm not away partaking in extracurricular activities. I mean, so little and plinky. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to have to nail that one on dress to kill. Sorry. <laughs> well, I agree. I mean, the, the, the guitar tones on that record are, are I mean, especially uh, Paul's guitar. I'm assuming that's Paul because it's most of the rhythm tracks I'm really hearing. Uh, the plinky that you're kind of referring to because the, the, the guitars are a little thin on that record. Uh, I think that makes the album maybe a little snappier than uh, a little peppier. And maybe uh, I like the concise thing about Dress to Kill. I like the fact that it's you know, in and out and over before you even really are able to sink it in. I like that about it. But as far as Planky, I could see that with the, with the guitar tones on Dress to Kill. But man, the drums, that's just so hard to overlook. Those are freaking awesome. Could have been a great, could have been a great album, I think, you know, with a bit, a bit more work. Needs more cowbell. <laughs> Definitely needs more cowbell. Sean, thoughts? Something I was just wondering because you mentioned guitar solos why doesn't ace have a solo on rock and roll all night on that studio version was has anyone ever said a reason or he was out at a card game and dick <laughs> dick wagner wasn't available that's right <laughs> you know i i don't i don't know if anyone's ever asked him you know I, I always thought it was just time limitations. That album was recorded so fast. I mean, what, they'd started it in L.A. while they were wrapping up the end of the tour. I mean, 
what was it? One of those, uh, um, I think, demos, uh, that, that group of four demos were all cut out in L.A. when they're out there. So straight back to New York and they're recording it and then they're back on the road by, what, Mar March. So that that was a lot of rush. I'd love to hear, you know, better quality of those demos from that album. Yeah, you know, uh, as far as rock and roll and ice concerned, I think that song, and I could be wrong because I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure on on where I heard this, but my understanding was rock and roll and I almost from the get go. Uh, I know Paul and Gina both said that that song was assembled really with the intention of it being a single. They needed a rallying cry for the for the troops, as it were, and so maybe uh, you know with with uh, Bogart being a singles man, especially back in the the bubblegum era a few years preceding uh there weren't solos in those songs you know those songs were very concise barely even at three minutes so it makes me wonder if maybe the reason the solo was never there was never a solo in that song was just let's get in let's crank out that repetitive chorus as many times as we can to hook people in and then get out so maybe a guitar solo was you know was maybe that was an ill-advised thing uh but maybe it was intentional i don't know so being a fan in 74, do you remember Kissing Time coming out as a single? Talking about single fodder and Neil Bogart? Yeah, no, I don't. Um, you know, I was six years old in 1974. Um, so my recollections of that first tour, I actually saw Kiss in, in late 74 in Indiana uh, with my brothers. And uh, I don't have a whole lot of recollection of it. I do have some foggy recollections. But my, my memories with Kiss as far as, I guess, uh, my childhood memories really kind of started more in, in mid 75. Uh, that's when I really, the story starts to, I can flash back to that period of time and remember, you know, what was going on with, with kiss because being from Indiana, which is where I'm originally from, uh, was close to Terre Haute, not very far. Uh, Terre Haute's only, I don't know, 35, 40 miles from my hometown. So, um, you know, I was very, very aware of what was going on with the Kiss Army thing as it started to started to happen. So that's really when my memories of Kiss are firm. That's awesome. I mean, found from the first album. I'm jealous. 1974, when I was three years old, and well, we were still living in England. So God knows what I was listening to because the earliest music I remember was Boney M. God awful. <laughs> Boney M. Yeah, rah rah Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. So, yeah, but you guys had Sweet, you had Slade. I mean, I'll tell you what, I'm an Anglophile all the way, so I'm kind of you know with Gene uh, and Paul. A lot of my a lot of my influences and and most prominent memories are, are British rock, not even American rock. Kiss being really the sole exception. Yeah, I had an aunt who listened to the to Slade, but none of that was really played around us. I mean, in, in that phase, she had gone from Slade, and I think she was listening to Jimmy Osmond. Uh, it's the earliest music again. So Anglophile music is great, but I think it's uh probably makes more of an impression on those in America, you know, kind of like oh, yeah. you know, we can the only music I remember being played, you know, Osmond's my parents Beatles, because Liverpool connection. Um, damn, but you get Kiss. You get Ki you get Kiss seventy four. I get Kiss nineteen eighty five. So, uh, <laughs> well, you 
know, I I remember I you know Kiss was they were totally they were sort of like uh, Marilyn Manson uh, in in their day as far as they were kind of um, they were beneath most of the critics at that point, which Kiss has never been a critics band anyway. But I think at some point critics finally just surrendered and said, "Screw it, they're not going anywhere. We might as well at least acknowledge their existence." But those first three years of the band's existence, really up through Destroyer. Uh, they were nobodies, at least in my area of the country. They were nobodies. And the people that did know them that weren't diehard fans like myself hated them. I mean, they thought they were dirty, repugnant, vile, lowlifes. So, you know, I mean, uh, they didn't really become sort of a kiddie band until around the solo albums, you know, when Phantom of the Park came out. That, to me, is when I really noticed, uh, you know, the image sort of being watered down. But Sean, you're even you're even well, I guess you're younger. You're into the band even later than us. You know, how 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 does how does that happen for you? Um, I think a lot of my musical taste and my taste of pop culture in general really comes from my parents. Uh, my mom was born in the late fifties and my dad in the mid sixties, so they grew up with a lot of the rock from the sixties and seventies. And so that's just what they listened to it. I think I was just around that style of music a lot and probably how I discovered Kiss. My mom was probably a bigger Kiss fan than my father was. My dad always liked more jazz or blues based rock while my mom was a bit more into what came out of the seventies and then the eighties with hair metal. Yeah, so what was the, what was the music around your, your place growing up that you kind of remember being the music that Got you aware of music, I guess, for want of a better term. The only music that I really listened to as a really young kid was Kiss. I wasn't really consciously aware of a lot of other music, um, unless it was like in a movie or something. Like I knew Will Smith music because he put his music in his movies. Yeah. It wasn't until I hit uh, puberty and went to junior high that I started to really pay attention to what people I went to school with were listening to as well as what my parents liked. I started watching uh, VH1 Classic and the stuff that they show. I started getting exposure to uh, music videos. And I think visually is how I got introduced to a lot of bands because my mom has a lot of those home videos that were a big trend in the 80s and 90s. I just did a few like extreme close-up that she has several Aerosmith ones and a couple of Motley Crue ones. So I think visually I was always attracted to a lot of the bands from the 70s and 80s. Well, Motley Crue is Kiss, isn't it? <laughs> there are definitely similarities. Or, or, or maybe, no wait, Ma, Wasp was Kiss. Yeah, I remember when, I mean, you know, in the 80s when, when I first stumbled upon Wasp and Motley Crue, which is probably around the same time, uh, that to me was as close as you get to Kiss. And, you know, it just so happened that Kiss took off the makeup and sort of that, that theatric end of the bands kind of came to an end at that point. So those guys came in at really the perfect time. They they sort of, uh, you know, carried the, you know, carried the flag uh, while Kiss was off doing more of the vanilla stuff, which I don't mean uh, in a necessarily a negative way, but you know their their image 
and their live performances weren't quite as elaborate as they were back in the makeup days. So Wasp, yeah, I mean, they were they were a big deal to me when they came out back in the day. New album this year from Blackie. I'm looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, you know, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. It's, I've, I've been hearing about it for, I don't know, six months, seven months now, and I haven't seen a bit of press about it, so I'm starting to get a little worried. So let's wrap up here. Um, I'm going to put you both on the spot. I, I didn't post this question as a possible question. We, we started out talking about Kiss and the collaboration. If you had to pick a musical collaboration out out there, you know, that's happened before, what would be your favorite musical collaboration? And second part with, if you could pick someone for Kiss to collaborate with on a project, who would it be? Sean, let's put you on the spot. My favorite musical collaboration that's happened... Um it's hard for me not to go with the Aerosmith Run DMC one, simply because that's something I wouldn't really expect to work. But I actually like that version of the song better than the original one from Toys in the Attic. I just think that collaboration just worked really, really well. Um, in terms of what I'd like to see Kiss do, um, it's hard to say. Um, I'd be interested to see what they would come up with working with um, Alice Cooper, because I know Alice, particularly in the 80s, started doing a lot of collaborations with a lot of different people from other bands. And I think that would be interesting just just because they are somewhat similar, and I'd be curious to see how uh, Paul and Gene, as songwriters, would work with Alice. Yeah, what was it? Trash? Or whatever the second really big album had just about everyone under John Bon Jovi. Uh, well, he nicked the song from Zodiac Mind Warp as well. I mean, it, it, Mick Mars was on guitar on one, one track. I mean, yeah, I mean that. I didn't like. I couldn't stand the album, but it sure had everyone in under the sun on it. Good call on Run DMC as well. That was uh, that was a game changer in what '86, and it certainly uh, did a lot for Aerosmith's career. Jay, what about you? You know, uh, I, I've been sitting here thinking while while we've been talking about uh, past collaborations, and you know, I got to say, I can't. Nothing really springs to mind. I mean, I'm certainly aware of plenty of different collaborations, but nothing's. I don't know. There's something about collaborations, maybe just the the idea of that that doesn't appeal to me. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just not adventurous enough. But um, so, having said that, I can't really think of anybody. You know, the the one person that I thought would be amazing uh, as a collaboration potentially with Kiss would have been Alice Cooper. Um, so I, I echo your statement, Sean, because I, I do think that both of them have such strong identities, both visually and conceptually, that the two of them together would be kind of an interesting, uh, you know, collaboration. I mean, I would be curious to see how it would turn out. Maybe a maybe a Kiss Black Sabbath. Uh, collaboration would be kind of cool, but uh, they're so stylistically different, I, I really don't even know what that would sound like. So that's the best I got, man. See, putting Kiss and Alice Cooper together is you know, kind of like Momo Arrow. You know, very, they, they both got very visual stage shows. And I, I was watching some of the, uh, the Japanese girls stuff uh, just to try and get my head around what they were as a band. But you know, what could Kiss and Alice do that they haven't both kind of done, you know, 
as a, as, as a niche. If I've got to pick the one collaboration, I'm going with Anthrax and Public Enemy because that was just the one that really drew my attention to rap um, more so than the Aerosmith one um, into a whole different sort of, you know, the Public Enemy type of rap as it started getting a little bit more um, edgy. Um, and Anthrax, who I despise, just a band I do not care for, it was probably one of the few bits of music of theirs other than I'm the man that I can take. So that, that will be, that'll be the one for me as far as kiss working with anyone. I, I don't see any point. Maybe they can collaborate with Vinnie Vincent. Now that would be a good idea. I mean, they, they've never really so far, never had any, any bad collaborations with Vinnie Vincent. I mean, you got pretty much the entire lick it up album, half of creatures of the night and, you know, a couple songs on, uh, revenge so no complaints there but a, find him. but as an active act he doesn't count because he's uh he's he's one of the disappears <laughs> that's true modern musicians uh who who would they do well with uh i don't know probably the kardashians they could do uh you know kardashian family album with kisses the backing group well you know i mean uh, uh what's his name from slipknot i always forget his name no joey jordanson uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I could, you know, maybe Slipknot would be kind of an interesting thing. Cause he is a huge, uh, you know, he's a huge fan of all the bands from the 70s, uh, an acknowledged Kiss fan. Uh, so maybe maybe something like that would be kind of interesting. Or Rob Zombie, if we've, we've mentioned Alice Cooper, who's the successor to Alice Cooper, really. It's kind of Rob. Yeah, just keep Rob off the mic. Just have a production <laughs> and, and write. <laughs> All right, guys, we're approaching an hour. Um, Want to wrap it up. Alan, you dropped off, so we'll have to get your picks in a thread on the topic. Um, any final words, guys, for the board, for the world? I'll see you all on the FAQ. Thanks for inviting me, Julian. I appreciate it. And Sean, good meeting you, brother. And uh, I'll say hello to Alan when I get back to the forum. Sean. Thanks for letting me be a part of this. It was uh, really fun. And uh, everyone on the FAQ board and elsewhere, whether you drink red, blue, purple, or green Kool-Aid, you're all welcome. You know, So come on over and uh, let's have a debate. Thank you, everyone, for your time. And thank you, participants, for joining me today. Thanks. See you guys next time. Have a good one.